2: Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
0: <clears> at <throat> and connects an O to
2: podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream.
0: Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday, time to go into the old vault. Uh, This time we're following up the episode that played last Saturday, so we're bringing you the Voynich Manuscript Part 2. This was originally published on September 5th, 2019. We hope you enjoy.
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Hey,
0: welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we are back with part two of our exploration of the Voynich Manuscript or the Vonich Manuscript. We've been saying both. This medieval manuscript that has fascinated uh, uh, scholars, cryptographers for for decades now – Uh, or actually not just decades, for centuries, but especially since it was reintroduced to the world around 1912 and has become the subject of intense interest because it is full of this text that has not been successfully decoded if it is, in fact, a code or has not been translated if it is, in fact, a language accompanied with these amazing, strange illustrations of alien plants and and uh, women bathing in these strange horns with crocodile tendrils is this absolutely captivating document that is in a library at Yale now. And uh, today we wanted to go further by exploring the history of people trying to understand this document to come up with a theory of its origin or to explain what it says, if it says anything. Yeah, so again, definitely listen to part one if you have not. Absolutely, Uh, This is
1: definitely a part one, part two scenario.
0: Yeah, I think you'll probably be very confused if you try to jump in in the middle here. So go back, do part one first. Uh, But so I thought we should start off today by separating the different theories uh, of of this manuscript into two basic camps. And then within these camps, there will be different theories. But the, the two main camps I think we should look at are signal theory and noise theory. And so signal theory looks at the, at the Voynich manuscript and proposes that there is some underlying meaning to the text, that it could at least in theory actually be translated to yield a signal signal or a message. And of course, it's not necessarily saying that we have understood what the message is or that we ever will understand what the message is, but at least in theory, it could be understood. It says something that's signal theory. Noise theory, we would say, proposes that there is no underlying message. It's just gibberish, whether intentionally or unintentionally.
1: Yeah, and 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 indeed that does cut to the chase. Either this is a document that means something or it means nothing. And and both are are kind of enthralling possibilities. One is is filled with wonder and old, and and gives way to all sorts of uh, you know conspiracy theories if you gaze into it long enough. And the other is is kind of equally terrifying that this thing that has captivated and just and overwhelmed so many you know intensely intelligent and, and, and in many cases you know very well educated individuals they could but it could ultimately
0: be a work of nonsense that is just you know it's kind of like just pure chaos. And there could be multiple reasons why it could be a work of nonsense or at least nonsense to us. And I think we'll explore these individually. But first, I think we should look at some of the possibilities for understanding this document under the signal theory, the theory that it actually does say something. So what would some of these explanations be?
1: Well, one of the the big theories is the the cipher theory, Uh, the idea that the text is protected by a letter-based cipher. Uh, It's a very popular approach to trying to figure out what's going on with the Vonage manuscript.
0: Right. So the idea could be that it's something like a letter substitution system. Right. So these characters that we don't recognize, you know, roughly maybe uh, 15 to 25 or up to 30 characters that are used to make the words in this book somehow correspond to – letters in a known language or letters in some coded language or uh, or, or something like that. The, 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 there's a way of breaking the code and it, and it can be retranslated into a, an actual language. Yeah,
1: getting into the idea here that it, it it could be in a code and it requires a code book. And since we don't have the code book, it's the cryptographer's, uh, uh, you know, um, a goal to try and figure out what the code might be.
0: Oh, okay. So a code book could mean mm-hmm. that it wouldn't even necessarily have to be a straight, like, letter substitution type cipher. Mm-hmm. It could just be that there are, you know, like, known translations of certain word forms or something like that to other known words. Right.
1: Uh, another possibility is that it's written in some form of shorthand hmm. uh, that, that we have, you know, lost uh, understanding of. There's also uh, the uh, the idea of uh, steganography. This is the idea that the text itself is meaningless, but key signs would indicate hidden useful information, like little details uh, on the illustrations or the text itself, or some combination. Um, this would be kind of like, I guess, kind of like a you know a, a, a cheap spy novel version of this is mm. like counting the dotted eyes on a page, right? Sort of thing,
0: and that tells you something. Right. Sure,
1: yeah. Another variation that's brought up is that uh, you could obtain the necessary info info by placing a plate um, over the page with spaces in that plate to reveal
0: the important characters. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this would be, you know, like one of those, uh, uh, you know, decoder ring kinds of things. Yeah. Oh, no. That that actually, I think, is letter substitution. But there are... There are codes like out this, like this in toys and stuff that you can buy. That, like, you put a plate over; it's got certain holes on it, and you read the letters that appear in the
1: holes. Right, and it's my understanding that if if, if those plates were random enough, that in and of itself could make it extremely difficult if not impossible, to crack the code, uh, uh, you know, of the Vonish Manuscript. Sure.
0: But then um, there are other theories that are less about code and that might still present to us as codes, but maybe it wasn't intended as a code. Yeah,
1: like a big one is that it is some form of natural language that has been forgotten. Uh, and various possibilities from Eurasia have been presented.
0: Yeah, so the idea here would just be uh, we've got no other documents written in this language or written in this uh, in this transliteration of the language,
1: right? And then an- another idea to come back to something
0: we discussed in the last episode is that it could be a constructed language. Hmm. So, like a language that somebody made up on purpose, like Klingon or Dothraki, but the you know 15th century version of that,
1: right? Now, an- now another intriguing idea, and this was uh, apparently presented by um, Jerry Kennedy and Rob Churchill, uh, that it could be a what is what is called a glossolalia. Yeah. So this would have been uh, essentially like a work that is a stream of consciousness. Uh, work that is created via speaking in tongues, uh, similar to the, the work of Christian mystic Hildegard of Bingen.
0: Yeah, and th- this would be, uh, I mean, you could look at it as a form of automatic writing. Right. You know, that that's so, there, there could be a, <laughs> this could be a weird transcription of spoken glossolalia, like speaking in tongues, or it could be a written version of it directly. It would be kind of weird if it was a transliteration of sounds made orally by glossolalia into a script that didn't exist anyway but uh, you can imagine it certainly being like automatic writing of some kind people that the spirits are writing through my hand and i think that would mean in this case that while it might not be meaningless to the person writing it it would be meaningless to any reader so i think this would fall under the noise category Mm -hmm. right that there would be there is no way to understand what this says because there is no underlying signal. Because in this case,
1: presumably the context for the piece would be very personal mm-hmm. and then also would probably deal a lot with personal reevaluation of the text. Right. You know, it'd be, it's almost like it's like less than a dream journal mm-hmm. in a way, you know, uh, where the dream is not even even taken and put into the into a uh the the form of language but like the 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 dream is is in language.
0: Yeah. It would be like if, if you had a dream journal, yeah, where you, you never translated it into any real language. You just made notes about your dreams in random other symbols yeah. that don't mean anything to anybody else.
1: And then of course another big idea is that it's simply a hoax.
0: Right. That it doesn't mean anything. There's no encoded signal, it's just noise. Because somebody was intentionally trying to create an object that would maybe confuse people or trick them or maybe just trick them into thinking that it did say something.
1: Right. And if, and if that is indeed the reason for uh, the, the origin story of this document— then it is still succeeding it is it has probably succeeded remarkably well because if it is a hoax it is still tricking people to this day yeah uh, another idea is that if it were a hoax if it were a completely fraudulent document you could also make a case that it was a, a you know a way to try and make a quick buck off of a, a, you know a cult um uh, fanboys with a lot of money, such as the Holy Ro- Roman Emperor, who per- who purchased it.
0: So we know it was sold to Rudolf II. We think around 1586. That's when the historical records indicate. But the carbon dating of the vellum says that this this. This parchment, at least, was probably produced in like the early fourteen hundreds now maybe maybe the we think like it's possible the parchment the vellum sat around for a long time before it was made into mm-hmm. this document. But if you think that the creation of the pages on which it was written was sometime close to when the document was written then it would have been written long before there was a chance to sell it to Rudolf II. So it would be hard to imagine that it was created specifically for that purpose. Right Now, one of the things is that people have tried to do various kinds of statistical analysis of the text to say, okay, does even though we can't translate it yet— does this look like a natural language? Does it look like it could somehow be decoded to or translated to a natural language? And I would say that the answer there is inconclusive. There are pieces of evidence pointing both ways, right? Like one commonly cited weird feature of the text that really makes it look like not a natural language is the fact that in some cases, words are repeated in line up to three times in a row, is that normal for a language? Is that normal, normal, normal? <laughs> not really, really,
1: really. I mean, I don't know. Poetically, uh, <laughs> lyrically, uh, Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. I mean, we can all think of examples from, uh, from songs and poetry and writing where that's uh, where, interesting. Where, yeah, you know, something may be said three times to uh, to add emphasis. But I mean, I I am not uh, I am not the expert. Comment <laughs> commenting on this, this it, rem- It's saying Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. This does remind me, though, of when I was a kid. Sometimes I would like try and create like documents that looked like they were, you know, magical documents in mm-hmm. another language, you know, with weird runes. Um, and actually, I do that still sometimes, like doodling, you know, in the, the corners of a page if I'm supposed to be taking notes on something. Uh, but I even even as a kid, I would I would look back at what I had done and I would realize like well, this this doesn't look like language, like it doesn't like there's not enough variety in the these the, the little sigils that I've uh, I've concocted or something mm. that I just essentially pulled out of my head there right uh, like it, it it it's not matching up with what one would expect from any kind of writing or coded writing system
0: yeah uh, so i mentioned in the last episode there was a good article about this from 2011 in skeptical inquirer by the german computer scientist klaus scheme who uh, who? I think he looked at a lot of the, the statistical qualities of the text uh, from a cryptography point of view. And it seemed like he said, yeah, there, there's evidence both ways. And we can continue to talk about uh, some of that evidence uh, as we go on in the episodes. One interesting claim I came across, I, I, I'm uh, sorry that I feel like I can't evaluate whether this is a correct claim or not, but at least it's a claim that's made against the noise theory or any theory recommending an interpretation of nonsense is that the document uh, at least appears to follow something called Ziff's Law, which concerns the statistical distribution of words in natural languages. So basically, Ziff's Law claims that in any natural language— the frequency with which a word is used will be directly proportional to how how high it ranks in the ranking of most common words. So the first most common word will be used twice as often as the second most common word, three times as often as the third most common word, and so forth. Now, this isn't exactly law in like the physical or mathematical sense, but it, it, for some reason it does appear to hold true for all or almost all natural languages And so if uh, and and the document appears to match this. So like if you look at it uh, from a Ziff's law distribution, it lines up pretty close. So if the frequency count of words in this document follows this law, uh, if that is if that claim is correct, meaning it has a similar distribution of words to real documents in real languages, that seems to make it a little harder to believe. It's just total nonsense generated out of somebody's head. Yeah. Another thing is that. Uh, Different words appear with different frequencies in different sections. So remember, we've got these different sections of the document, like the astrological stuff versus the herbal stuff. And so you have some words that might appear in the supposed astrological section, but not in the plant section and vice versa. This would, I think, be expected if these were written in a real language with a real message. Like you would, amaze, uh, you would probably expect the word star to appear in the astrological section but not in the plant section. So just looking at the symbols, the, the frequency dis- distribution of symbols and, and how they break out and, and how well they resemble a real language, it seems like it can push us kind of in both directions. Mm. It, it, we don't get a clear uh, reading from for either way from that. And, and again, this just comes back to the, 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 what makes this document so
1: mysterious. It's so resistant to unraveling. So, a, a number of theories have been put, put forth uh, for the origins and the true nature of the text. Uh, you know, so much so that in 1978. When um, American cryptologist and computer programmer Mary Di Imperio composed the Vonich manuscript, an elegant enigma for the U.S. military, yeah. this was commissioned by the U.S. military. Hey, cryptography! I mean, that's a, yeah. a, a of massive state importance. It is, yeah. So this is not like some sort of weird, you know, Area Fifty-One type of uh, shenanigan going on here. Uh, but in this uh, this paper, which is readily available online, you can find a PDF of the full thing. She admits that she quote unwittingly retraced the steps of all my predecessors, re- rediscovering their sources, repeating their experiments, growing excited over the same promising leads that excited them, <laughs> and learning only later that all these things had already been tried and had failed often several times. Oh. And I found that to just be very, um, very fitting because this does seem to be a theme uh, you know,
0: certainly in the, in the last century. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not hard to see why. Again, th- this is like it's sort of the holy grail of of, of decoding, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. So it's, it's the Mount Everest of code breaking.
0: If you could crack it, you'd be you'd be like the hottest, you
1: know. Code cracker in the world, yeah, and so code crackers have have tried have taken a shot at it. Linguists have have uh, have taken a shot at it. Various scholar, all manner of scholars, amateurs, and of course outright quacks. Oh yeah, this <laughs> have, is... have taken uh, <laughs> taken their hand to the Voynich manuscript.
0: I think we alluded to this in the last episode, but the internet is full of people who claim to have decoded the Voynich manuscript to the point <laughs> where, when we were preparing for the episode, I mean, a lot of these were just like. You know, somebody in the last year or two has published a, you know, a YouTube video or a, or an article somewhere where they're like, I did it. I cracked it. Here's the answer. And I'm like, I don't know. Uh, maybe one of these people actually did. And it just hasn't really been analyzed or reported on yet. I, it, I have no way of knowing because I don't have an expertise, obviously, in the relevant fields. So I can't like evaluate it on my own. But it, it's funny, like there are so many people trying and claiming to have done it that you somebody could have done it and we might not even know for a while because it would just get lost in the sea of, of, of all these claims. Yeah.
1: All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we are going to discuss the, the possibility, uh, pretty much discredited possibility, that Roger Bacon actually had a hand in
0: creating this.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
2: WORK.
0: Zumo play. All right, we're back. Time to talk about Mr. Bacon. Now you remember from the last episode, the it came with a certificate of authenticity originally. When Rudolf II, the Holy Roman Emperor, bought this, uh, bought the Voynich manuscript for 600 ducats or ducats, he uh, it came along with a letter that said, "Oh, by the way, Roger Bacon made this."
1: Yeah, and according to Josephine Livingstone, who wrote a, a really nice piece in the New Yorker about this, actually a couple of pieces. One was kind of a follow-up where she talked about just internet fascination with uh. the Vonnegut manuscript. Uh, she points out, yeah, that this does not seem to be the case, uh, though. Uh, though it was a kind of a popular idea for a while, mm-hmm. or it was like repopularized in uh, b- you know well before the um, the carbon dating actually took place. But uh, one uh, William Romaine Newbold, a professor of intellectual and moral th- uh, philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania, he argued in favor of the Bacon origin, believing uh, it to be an anagrammed micrographic shorthand. <laughs> it required uh, transposition, abbreviation, and microscopic notation.
0: Yeah, the, his method from what I've read was – a, a little over the edge. I mean, it's like he was like looking inside the characters mm-hmm. to see little micro, like strokes of ink. That may have indicated actual letters or abbreviations of word phonemes, and so his his method of decoding it, which he claimed was successful, was incredibly complicated.
1: Yeah, but he claimed that he had translated, and he provided all these details, like drawing it into various uh, you know other writings and ideas of Bacon, uh, and he was apparently a brilliant individual, but but no one could take his solution. And reproduce the same results
0: using these methods, right? It required so many subjective judgment calls about what he was seeing on the page in these micro notation marks, and what that was supposed to correlate to.
1: Yeah, uh, medieval, medievalist John Matthews Manley, one of uh, the the army's chief cryptologists during World War I, concluded that the quote uh, decipherments were not discoveries of secret hidden of secrets hidden by Roger Bacon but the products of Newbold's own intense enthusiasm
0: and his learned and ingenious subconscious. (laughs) Uh, According to Schmay's article in Skeptical Inquirer, Newbold's translation had revealed that Roger Bacon already had a telescope in the 13th century, predating the known invention of the telescope uh, in the first decade of the 1600s by like centuries, and that Bacon had used this telescope to discover the spiral structure of the Andromeda galaxy. Oh, wow. It's just hard to believe, though, that like you could generate, uh, generate text that complex, you know, yeah. just by subjective interpretations of tiny things. And then of course, as we're saying, like nobody else could, could come up with the same translations based on what he had. So <laughs> I don't know. It, it just seems like it, he was, he was looking for the text he wanted to find almost like, right. like it spells like new bold is great. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, you know, another great, uh, interesting, insightful description of, uh, of this, uh, this incident with Newbold comes from Terence McKenna. Oh, yeah. Who uh, wrote about the manuscript for Gnosis Magazine in 1988 in what is, by the way, a, a purely historical linguistic article that has nothing to do with any of his writings on psychedelics.
0: Though I can absolutely see why McKenna would be interested in this subject because it's this its this manuscript that seems to sit at the intersection of primitive science and magic and plants.
1: Yeah, uh, this uh, this particular article is uh, you can find it online in PDF form. It's also collected in the Archaic Revival. It is uh, you know dated. It's 1988, so mm. it was written prior to carbon dating. Uh, but uh, he sums up the Newbold uh, case by saying, "Quote the problem." With all of this, was that no one else could extract the same plain text using Professor Newbold's method? It involved so many choices from pools of letters at every given point along the way that one could demonstrate that hundreds of different messages could be extracted from the same passages. Newbold died a broken man, disgraced; his career shattered. He had gone too far, and the Vaughnich manuscript had claimed its first victim. Right now, McKenna is not actually arguing that there's a curse on the document or anything
0: here but he though t- i think he does get a little magic-y with it later on um i mean a tiny well a, maybe in some a, of his talks i, okay, I listened to him give in a lecture talks. about it
1: yeah in this particular paper he doesn't really tie it into any of his more um uh, you know uh, spiritual shamanistic ideas it's, mm. it's ultimately pretty straightforward though uh, again a dated piece because of right. when it was written um but uh, but 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 he does touch on, in this, on this idea of it claiming it's first victim uh-huh. on a pattern that one sees to this very day in Vonage research. Mm-hmm. It draws so many people in. And certainly while there are quacks and conspiracy theory makers in the mix, you also see a lot of very intelligent, educated and disciplined people diving into the text and initially claiming victory only to realize that they too have failed to see through its mysteries. And, and in some cases are, are kind of broken on the manuscript again.
0: Yeah. McKenna also tell, I wish I could remember the name of this, but he tells an anecdote. Uh, I don't know if this is one of the commonly circulated stories about the translation attempts, but he tells an anecdote about this one aging scholar who was in his nineties, who claimed uh, to some colleagues to have cracked the code to mm-hmm. you know to understand what it says and then when somebody was trying to follow up with him about that they were like okay we'll fly down to meet you but by the time they got there he had died of a heart attack
1: yes yes that's something he relates in the gnosis piece as well so whatever information that uh, expert may have had it was lost with them when they died
0: well i think the the implication is that the expert had not actually solved it and just happened to die right in time <laughs> to not get found out yeah
1: Uh, Certainly the more likely scenario, given everything that we've discussed here. Now, uh, I mentioned uh, John Matthews Manley earlier, the um, World War I uh, Army cryptologist. Mm -hmm. Well, he ends up uh, turning Army cryptographer William F. Friedman onto the manuscript in 1925. Uh, William and his wife, Elizabeth, worked on the project for 40 years. Uh, Friedman was uh, considered one of the greatest cryptographers of his day. He and his team cracked Japan's code purple during World War II but they were never able to figure out the manuscript either. Um, though Friedman did seem to believe that it might have been an attempt to construct an artificial or universal language. Mm-hmm. Robert S. Brumbach, also of uh, Yale University, uh, took a crack at it as well and produced some confusing uh, decipherings that ultimately led nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, also Alan Turing apparently took a crack at it as well. Oh, the king of codebreakers. Yeah, and uh, even Turing couldn't uh, make any sense of it. Now, uh, another interesting case here, uh, in 1987, one uh, uh, Dr. Leo uh, Levitt, Levitov presented the idea that the book was a liturgical manual for the, the Cathar religion of the Middle Ages, basically the only surviving document of the, the catheter heresy, a sort of Gnostic revival movement that was effectively decimated by the uh, Albigensian crusade of the early 13th century. And much of our understanding of, of this religion is lost. But Levitov makes the argument that it's a book of Cathar sacraments, including uh, a euthanasia practice Whoa. or perhaps you know, a ritualized act of suicide known as Endura. Um, Wh- which of the illustrations uh, is supposed to show that? The bathtubs. Okay. So – yeah, he, he, Levitov argues that we're seeing a discussion of the vonage, in the Vonage of Endura as a rite of ritual opening of the veins and a hot bath as a means of consensually ending one's life in a sacred fashion. And this ties into like ideas of, of the Cathars believing like that the the physical body was inherently uh, you know debased mm. uh, and therefore like the uh, it's part of uh, you know the, of ensuring that a refined soul uh, you know travels beyond this plane of being that sort of thing. But then he also connects Catharism uh, uh, to the worship of the goddess Isis, and he, uh, you know, he believed that uh, that it was uh, not encrypted at all uh, the, the the manuscript. But it was uh, written in this uh, this you know this this mixture of uh, medieval Flemish and old French and old High German loan words, mm. all kind of you know uh, formed in this amalgamation of language. Um, but while some saw promise in Levitov's argument, there were plenty of people who had numerous problems with it. Uh, A big one is that, uh, the Enduro was definitely uh, a thing. According to, um, Costas Siamis in writing for the Journal of Religion and Health in 2016, uh, quote, the Enduro was the prerequisite act of repentance that allowed the fallen soul to return to heaven, but, Pretty much everybody agrees that it was um, it was basically a fast. It was not a ritual suicide or euthanasia. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, another one is this whole ISIS connection. This doesn't pop up anywhere else. And years later, you know, we'd finally get some carbon dating that dismissed uh, the, you know the idea that a bacon, a bacon origin was possible, and certainly a pre bacon origin of the text was equally. Uh, Unlikely or impossible.
0: Yeah, I'd say that's fairly impossible, given that the vellum was not from before the early fifteenth century, right? Uh, unless again we're dealing with like a copy of an earlier text, which again it doesn't necessarily look like.
1: Now, uh, when we look at other theories as to you know where it came from. Um, uh you know there there have been various and most of them haven't really endured uh there is the interesting notion that 16th century occultist mathematician and cryptographer John Dee along with Edward Kelly may have been involved with the manuscript in some
0: for, some form or another now this is McKenna's theory he's got a, a complicated argument that uh that like yes it probably was John Dee and Edward Kelly who wrote this document mm mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, McKenna did present that idea that he though he also readily admitted that it was just more, you know, it's more basically a conjecture on his part and he he had he had not done a rigorous work to back it up and there were n- numerous potential holes in the the situation. Uh-huh.
0: Uh, uh but but Kelly and and uh, D did dabble in uh, not dabble. They more than dabbled yes. in occult practices. So I mean, it's again, it's speculative, but it's not hard to see somebody like John D Coming up with a with a strange constructed document that's got kind of magical suggestions in it.
1: Yeah, we have two older episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind about John D. Uh, that will probably be running as vault episodes uh, here in the immediate future. But uh, yeah, he was a, he was one of the most brilliant minds of his day. He was involved in cryptography, spycraft, occultism, and mathematics. Uh, Edward Kelly, his uh, accomplice here, was an was an occultist and. And most agree, a con man or a scoundrel of some fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, it is uh, it's generally uh, described that uh, Edward Kelly's ears were were both missing, uh, you know, his punishment for some deed in his past. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, but between the two of them, I, I often have sort of tried to figure out like what what is the energy, what is the nature of of their um, collaboration? You know, they're in a way they're they're a perfect duo, but they're also kind of the strange duo where. Uh, you know, D, there's nobody else like him. And then you wonder, like, to what extent is uh, is Kelly, like, taking advantage of the situation? Um, or is he, you know, able to to actually aid D in, in some of his various operations here? But again, like, the interest in cryptography was there, the interest in uh, occultism. Uh, they also both wrote of communication with angels uh, in the Enochian tongue, <laughs> um, which uh, which we have an alphabet for, by the way, and and it is not uh, the Enochian, uh language that we see in the Vonich uh, manuscript. Okay, um, but certainly, if you're looking for people at that time period, people who w- you know would have been traveling in this area and have had contact with um, with the Holy Roman Emperor, um, you know,
0: these are, these are two prime suspects. Yeah, and I do think um, maybe you were going to get to this in a minute, but I do think it's a decent hypothesis that even if John Dee didn't write this, that John Dee was the source who brought the Voynich manuscript to uh, the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II.
1: Yes. In, uh, in the book in, by Benjamin Woolley, uh, The Queen's Conjurer, which is a biography of Dee that I, I read a few years back for the Stuff of Your Mind episode, the author does mention that Rudolf may well have acquired the manuscript from Dee. Ah, uh, but he does not entertain or dismiss the idea that D was involved in its production. Ah, mm. uh, but but he at least acknowledges that it's it's possible that D is the individual who sold it to the emperor. And if that is the case, like well, then we can we can add one more step, uh, you know, t- to the beginning of the history of the book. But we still don't know where D acquired it. Right. So the mystery remains. But jo- John D is a fascinating individual. I mean, he is uh, he is essentially. Not only is he the Merlin of the day, mm-hmm. but a lot of our d- ideas that we associate with the uh, the, the mythical and fictional wizard uh, Merlin
0: kind of stem from Dee. Uh, I think it's believed that he was the inspiration for Shakespeare's Prospero in mm-hmm. The Tempest, right? Yeah, I've, I've read that as well. Uh, so,
1: yeah, he's an astounding figure. Uh, you know, To whatever degree uh, he was involved with the Vonage Manuscript – um, there's still plenty of mysterious and wonderful things about, uh, about Dee himself. For instance, to what extent he was involved, uh, in, in statecraft and, and, and worked as a spy. Mm-hmm. Like there's some that argue that he was like totally a spy and that many of these occult manuscripts that he was, uh, you know, peddling around and discussing in occult ideas, they were essentially codes for things. Mm-hmm. Um, and others say that, no, he was more purely on the, uh, the occultist end of the spectrum. I, I, my read, and I think this has been the read of, of other commentators, is that it's probably somewhere in between. You know, uh, One of these situations where you know, he was definitely uh, fascinating with, with the occult. He was uh, definitely and, I mean, he was a, a polymath. Uh, but being a polymath of the day uh, and one that, that, that traveled uh, throughout Europe, he ended up, uh, you know, and also being a devout servant to Elizabeth I, you know, he was, he was you know, more than happy to engage in a little spy craft from time to time.
0: Another weird connection. I believe John Dee is also supposed to be the inspiration for Christopher Marlowe's incarnation of Dr. Faustus, uh, uh, from, from, of course, Dr., you know, who makes a deal with the devil to get all knowledge and, Mm -hmm. you know, all earthly scientific power. Uh, and then Christopher Marlowe, who wrote the, the English play Dr. Faustus, was also, I believe, involved in statecraft and, and being a spy.
1: I'm fascinating. All right, so uh, there are various other um, origin stories that we're not going to get into, but, uh, but just to really drive home how this is still a thing, how, how people are still not, you know, not only attempting to crack the bonus manuscript, but, but claiming <laughs> that they did. We should discuss two recent attempts, one extremely recent attempts uh, to crack it that have also fallen short.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's at least one claim every couple of years that gets picked up by real like news sites. And then it always kind of like, oh, no, never mind. Well, in 2017,
1: we saw just such a case. Um There was a a history researcher and television writer by the name of Nicholas Gibbs, and uh, he published – it was published in the Times Literary Supplement – uh, he believed he'd identified, quote, a common form of medieval Latin abbreviations often used in medical treatises about herbs, and this led into illustrations in other texts, and he believed resembled those in the Vonich manuscript. Mm-hmm. And so this got this was widely covered in, in large part, of course, because it, it was initially published in the Times Literary Supplement. Right. It was picked out by picked up by numerous media outlets, including uh, Ars Technica. So, and initially at Ars Technica, um, editor uh, Annalie Newitz wrote, quote. This is, again, before it became discredited. Quote, Gibbs concluded that it's likely that the Vonich manuscript was a customized book possibly created for one person devoted mostly to women's medicine. Other medieval Latin scholars will certainly want to weigh in, but the sheer uh, mundanity of Gibbs' discovery makes it sound plausible.
0: Uh, Okay, so it's always like it, it helps you with the claim to have decoded something if the message you decoded is not salacious. I think it does help yeah, the other believability because I think yeah. that's that's ultimately part of the
1: mystery, right? Right. And the allure and danger of the mystery is that if that it is solved, is it, it's it's not gonna be groundbreaking anymore. Like the right. groundbreaking and the amazing thing about the Volnish manuscript is not that it contains something definite, but that we just have no ability
0: to grasp what it contains. Right. You you'd have to be more suspicious if it says like I know the location of the Holy Grail or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, okay, but after this piece
1: came out, then experts began to weigh in, and Newitt also wrote an excellent retraction piece, uh, 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 which uh, you know, citing the various experts who responded to that initial. Uh, times literary supplement paper mm. and the various experts concluded that while they think the text might actually turn out to be a medical treatise on women's health like that's not impossible uh-huh. uh, but they think that his translations were not grammatically correct and that according to medical academy of america director lisa fagan davis in the atlantic quote if they had simply sent it to the Benecki Library, they would have rebutted it in a heartbeat.
0: Yeah, and this is the library at Yale that actually has the Voynich manuscript. Right. I think they do Voynich scholarship there.
1: Right. So um, so just I guess that's a little bit of advice out there. If you are an editor potential of any kind of publication and you're potentially um, – uh, publishing something about someone cracking the Vonich manuscript, um, make a phone call, send an email to the Benecki Library, uh-huh. and see if you can get, get somebody to, to to weigh in on it uh, before you publish. Yeah, I think that would be a smart move. Now, have there been any cases this year? Yes, in in 2019, um, this one pro- popped up. You might have seen this headline: Bristol academic cracks Vonnich code, solving century-old mystery of a Medi- of medieval text. And yeah, I, I remember seeing this one. I want to mm. say that it even popped up on a fairly notable like uh, science release website that I use and was but then was later. Moved, hmm. Dr. Gerard Cheshire, a research assistant at Bristol University, claimed that it was a therapeutic reference book written in a lost language called Proto Romance. And this article appeared on the university's website, but then was later taken down after experts chimed in and uh, questioned the validity of the research. Ooh. And uh, n- n- there have I looked, there hasn't been like an additional follow up on that, but mm. uh, it would. It would seem to be the case uh, that it is an, there's another situation where, um, you know, someone thought they'd cracked it and they had not. That they had perhaps, in the, the words of uh, uh, Mary D'Imperio, you know, uh, recreated the same steps and missteps of those that came before mm. trying to crack the Vonage Manuscript. Yeah and of course in addition to this like we've said there's just a lot of baseless speculation surrounding the manuscript online on, yeah it on, features into historical conspiracy theories yeah you'll yeah. find it on YouTube you'll find it on various Reddit boards um, you know, uh, according to uh, Raymond Clemens, a curator of early books and manuscripts at the Benecki Library, uh, one of the the most fun examples that they've run across is that the Vonnich Manuscript is an alien, is the work of an alien visitor to Earth from the Andromeda galaxy who was making notes about our planet and then
0: dropped their notebook <laughs> before they returned. Well, wait. Why would it be notes about our planet if none of the plants can be identified?
1: Uh, maybe the alien – Uh, vision, eye vision, you know, Hmm. it's weird. I don't know. You know, maybe they were (laughs) there are a lot of holes
0: in this theory, Joe, is what I'm saying. Yeah. All right. We need to take one more break, but we'll be right back with more. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love
2: work. Zumo Play.
0: All right, we're back. Now, we've talked about evidence going in both directions of people who just try to look at the text statistically or mathematically as a text and say, does it look like a text in a real language, even coded in a real language? Mm-hmm. And the answer there is uh, th- some indications kind of point to yes and some indications kind of point to no. I think uh, one thing I wanted to look at now is something that was pointed out in that, uh, in that Skeptical Enquirer article by Klaus Schmey who was uh, – uh, he pointed out some interesting research from the early 2000s by the British linguist Gordon Rugg. So I'm just going to read this section from Schmey's article. Schmey writes, quote, The British linguist Gordon Rugg is among the most reputable Voynich researchers. He conducted a most interesting cryptological experiment. For his experiment, Rugg generated a table with random combinations of characters that he used as prefixes, roots, or suffixes of new words – He positioned a quadratic stencil like the one used for encryption in the 16th century over the table. In this manner, he obtained a sequence of letters that bore great resemblance to the text of the Voynich manuscript. Rugg's experiment supports the hypothesis that the manuscript is nothing but a compilation of meaningless lines and letters, which is, of course, the the hoax hypothesis. And then uh, Schmey also points out uh, a a study – by the Austrian physicist Andreas Schinner that also supports the idea that even though there are some things about this that do look like a text, it's possible, like a real text in a real natural language, it's possible to generate a text like this without it being based on a real language. And and Schinner's analysis, I think, was primarily based on the fact that there are unnatural regularities in the order of words appearing in the manuscript that don't mirror sequences of words that appear in mm. real languages so i don't think that completely settles it but that's more fuel back on the on the fire of the side that says okay this is just a, a hoax document or a glossolalia or something something that somebody made up and doesn't correlate to real words that make sense
1: but and then ultimately this yeah this gives credence to just the, its power to break those that that desperately seek to find meaning in it. Yeah, like it just kind of—it almost seems like it does point people to the you know near the threshold of madness where they they make that leap and they they say I've done it, I figured it out, and and believe that they have. You know, I mean, uh, none of the none of the individuals that we've we've named here, um, you know, from from the the Vonage manuscripts, uh, you know, recent history. You know, I don't think any of them have you know have, have been trying to pull anything over on anyone. I think they have they've reached a, a point where they genuinely think they they found uh, the clue. They found, uh, you know, the the, the,
0: the the missing piece that has enabled us to understand this document. Well, as satisfying as it is to solve a puzzle, it is equally maddening to work on a puzzle without solving it. Mm-hmm. And I think that can kind of drive people. It Like it creates unreasonable incentives in the mind to toil over a puzzle or a code for so long without breaking it. Like you, the desire to have broken it becomes incredibly strong.
1: Uh, I will say this one lesson I've taken home from all of this is friends don't let friends claim they've uh, cracked the Vonage manuscript. <laughs> That's right. If you if you know somebody and they're like hey you know I think I've I've translated the Vonich manuscript I'm going public with this tomorrow. Uh, you know talk him down from that maybe maybe uh you know to ask him to just to, to to settle down a little and uh, and rethink before you go public with this uh this
0: new translation i just want to say uh, though this is not conclusive for, from that interesting article by uh, by schme uh, about his conclusion just his opinion is that it's uh, very likely it's it's possible that it's a hoax of course he thinks the author was probably an anonymous artist living in the first half of the 1400s Uh, And if it is actually encrypted, one thing he points to that I think is interesting is he says it's easier to encrypt a text – if the encrypted text generates far more characters than the original text so if a 50,000 character original document was encrypted in a way that generates 170,000 characters then it's easier to see how it could still be hiding its meaning right if there's there's tons of if there are tons of characters in there that don't code out to anything like how do you separate the coding letters from the filler letters mm-hmm. so that's a possible explanation for if there is a code in there why it hasn't been cracked yet Uh, Another thing that he does find plausible is he finds it plausible that this is an artificial created language. Somebody just made up a language of their own and that's why it doesn't translate to anything else. Mm -hmm. Based on what I've read, that also seems plausible to me. I I can imagine this being – I don't know, a language – unique to one person who was, you know, toiling away in their turret or something in a monastery, or maybe shared by a small number of people for some kind of esoteric purpose or some kind of occult purpose, maybe. Absolutely. But the key being if it's an invented language rather than a code for an existing language, that would explain why it doesn't code out.
1: Well, whatever its origins, whatever its meaning or lack of meaning, it continues to enthrall us and perplex us. And uh, and I'd likely will continue to do so. Uh, yeah. I do I do not expect that we'll reach the point where we need to uh, you know add. Uh, there may be additional you know arguments, uh, some new uh, ideas that are brought up, but I am not expecting to see anybody crack this uh, in in the future.
0: Yeah, I will say as much as I would like to see it cracked, my. Uh, the, the walls of my skeptical fortress here have been fortified. And I now when I see an article, as they do tend to pop up once every year or two, an article about how somebody has cracked the, the Voynich manuscript, I think now I will probably conclude, OK, I, I bet that's not right. Right.
1: And then but then I'll go, another thing about it, too, is like if it was cracked, the magic would be gone. Like the part of the mm-hmm. ma- the, the the whole reason that we're enthralled by this document is that we don't know what it's meaning or meaninglessness really consists
0: of. Well, it's about, it's it's like how, uh, you know, the best part of a mystery is always the middle. It's almost never the end. Yeah. When you get to the end and you find out who done it, it's almost always disappointing. Yeah, because there are only so many ways it can go, right? Yeah. I'd say actually, though, to tie it back to the subject, one of the only example, counter examples I can think of is the name of the rose, where the solution <laughs> of the mystery is supremely satisfying.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's, there's a strong case to be made there, yeah. Um, interesting too, the other mystery book that I mentioned, um, uh, The Club Dumas by, uh, Perez Rivera, also mm-hmm. a mystery. Uh, that's the, the book that, uh, The Ninth Gate was based on. Okay. Uh, and I, uh, it's been a while since I've seen The Ninth Gate, but I, I definitely remember enjoying the book. Uh, it's a fun little, uh, you know, occult themed thriller, thriller. No, oh, I've never read it. I should check that out. How's the ending? Um, Pretty good, as I recall. Yeah, it's different from the movie. Uh, it, again, based on my my fading memory of it. But I, I'd love to close out here with uh, one one more quote from that Terence McKenna piece from nineteen ninety eight from oh. Moses magazine, which I think he sums up a lot of the like the power and the you know the, 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 our fascination with this uh, document. He said, "quote It is a kind of Borgesian concept that there must be somewhere an unreadable book, and perhaps this is it." The unreadable book hints at an I- at the idea that the world is in information. We have cognizance of the world by ordering all of the information we can we come upon in relation to information that we have already accumulated through patterns. An unreadable book in a non English script with no dictionary attached is very puzzling. We become like linguistic oysters. We secrete around it. We insist it into our metaphysics, but we don't know what it says, which always carries with it the possibility that it says something that would unhinge our conceptions of things or that its real message is its unreadability. It points to the otherness of the nature of information and is what is called in structuralism a limit text. Certainly the Vonich manuscript is the limit text of Western occultism. It is truly an occult book, one
0: that no one can read. (laughs) <laughs> the literal meaning of a cult, yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a mystery in the dark, absolutely.
1: All right, so there you have it, the Vonich manuscript. Uh, obviously, we'd love to hear from everybody out there because uh, it's, <laughs> have, have you cracked it? <laughs> have you cracked it? I there's it's very possible we will hear from someone who, who believes that they have, or uh, at the very least, perhaps you can turn us on to some other wild theories, uh, some of the the crazier theories that we didn't get into, uh, you know, involving its its origin. Uh, yeah, there was, there were some other ones we didn't uh, discuss, and what involving like the the. Uh, You know,
0: various other like uh, occult conspiracy theories. Uh, The Rosicrucians and stuff. McKenna talks about that. Yeah. yeah.
1: So uh, certainly, if you have uh, any of those ideas you want to chat with us about, uh, you can reach out to us. In the meantime, check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind at stufftoblowyourmind.com. And make sure that you have subscribed to the podcast. Make sure you subscribe to Invention as well. Invention is our in, our step-by-step journey through human techno history. And you can find that at inventionpod.com. Wherever you listen to our shows, just make sure that you have rate, rated and reviewed them because that helps us out
0: immensely. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Maya Cole and Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, to show us your Code to your your method of uh, decoding the Voynish manuscript, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
2: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. WORK.